Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm glad to be here again. I truly am. This is one of my favorite places to come visit. So I'm glad to have the opportunity. Please turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. And once there, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of God says this. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Asaharias into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Father, speak. You may be seated. Now, many of us are probably familiar with this story of Esther and King Xerxes. It's really a beautiful story where the king seeks to find the most beautiful woman in all the land. And the king sees many women, but they're not the one for him until he sees Esther. And upon seeing Esther... He is surprised by such beauty that he cannot help but say, send the others away, for I have found my bride. You see, King Xerxes was not the only one to have this experience with stupendous beauty. In fact, uh, very much later, there was a man named Prince Vladimir, a pagan in Russia. Prince Vladimir was looking for the most beautiful religion, not the most beautiful woman in the world. And he wanted to unite his empire around this single religion. So to this end, he sent his emissaries all over the world to bring back to him the greatest of all religions. And so one by one, the messengers returned. They told him about different religions. You know, one religion said you can't drink wine. And of course, Prince Vladimir is Russian, so that's not going to pass. Um, one by one, they come until the messengers arrive from Constantinople, from the Christian religion. And they come back to the prince, and they tell him that when they went to Constantinople, quote, they led us to the place where they worshiped their God, and we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth. For on earth there is no such vision nor beauty, and we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among men. We cannot forget that beauty. Once the prince had heard these words, he said, I will have that one. I will have the beautiful religion. 900 years later, there was a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky, a famous novelist. How many of you have ever read his works? Beautiful stuff. In one of his books called The Idiot, there was a Christ-like figure. It was called Prince Myshkin. And Prince Myshkin, several times throughout the course of the novel, had reported to have said, beauty will save the world. In one particular scene in chapter 5 of the book, part 3, one character asks, Is it true, Prince, that you once declared that beauty would save the world? Great heaven, the prince says that beauty saves the world, and I declare that he only has such playful ideas because he's in love. 
Gentlemen, the prince is in love. I guessed it the moment he came in. Don't blush, prince. You make me sorry for you. What beauty saves the world? Kalia told me that you are a zealous Christian. Is it so? Kalia says you call yourself a Christian. The prince regarded him attentively, but said nothing. This one line from Dostoevsky's book would inspire hundreds of commentators and hundreds of commentaries to figure out what exactly did Dostoevsky mean when he said that beauty will save the world. In fact, Alexander Solzhenitsyn would, in his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, talk about this statement. He would say these words, beauty will save the world? What sort of statement is that? For a long time, I considered it mere words. How could that be possible? When in bloodthirsty history did beauty ever save anyone from anything? Ennobled, uplifted, yes, but whom has it saved? Indeed, whom has it saved? See, we live in a time of skepticism where the gods and the enlightenment have proved wanting. And like Prince Vladimir, the culture and the people in it are in search of a new god, of a new religion. If we're not careful at times, we often try to suggest to them Christianity as the pragmatic fit-all religion. We often go on the streets and say, we've got the truth and it's good for you. But where is the beauty in that, dear brothers and sisters? When people speak of the Christian religion, do they speak of its beauty? Do they say, say what you want about those Christians? But they live such beautiful lives. Is that the word that most people use to describe our religion and our walk of faith? Is it possible that the Christian message can be today communicated in terms of beauty? If the Christian religion is ever to truly desire the transformation of this world, it must not protest the world into moral conformity. It must not hold up signs to the world and say, you're ugly, you're hideous, and therefore we're beautiful. No, dear friends, we must attract them by the love that we have for one another. Jesus did not say, they shall know that you are my disciples by the apologetical YouTube videos you post online. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. This is hard for many of us who are pragmatists at heart and only seek the religion which works for them, which best fits their own personal desires. Thus, it's very sad that many political leaders throughout history have tried to wine and dine the church. <laughs> right? The church never truly conquered Rome. Rome has conquered the church for many, many years. But there is God's faithful remnant, God's pure bride, the bride of true beauty that will never be wined and dined by this world because it is God's bride and it belongs to no other. You see, beauty at its core isn't really practical. Just examine many of the buildings that we work in, we go to school in. I'll tell you, at Liberty University, we have what's called the circle, which literally just looks like a brick plopped on the ground because beauty isn't practical. And some would say, what is it good for? Well, I have a confession to make. Beauty, it's true. It doesn't make living easier. It doesn't help us practically, but it makes life worth living. It makes life worth willing. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, from whence does beauty come? You probably have often heard the phrase, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. But who, dear friends, is the beholder? Well, the Greeks understood that there are the three prime virtues, the beauty, the truth, and the good. And in later years, Christians would come to identify these three prime virtues with God himself, who is truth, who is beauty, and who is goodness. You see, friends, 
These attributions of God are simply other names for God. It's not that there is some platonic thing called beauty that exists outside of God, upon which he is relying analogically in order to be called beautiful. No, friends, when you are experiencing beauty, you are experiencing God. When you're experiencing truth, you're experiencing God. Who is the truth? It's a person, and his name is Jesus. As Abraham Joshua Heskel said, beauty and grandeur are not anonymous. They are outbursts of God's kindness. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Indeed, every Christian can sympathize with King David, who writes in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Surely David was referring to what we as Christians call the beatific vision. I remember as a little kid, there was only one wish that I had if a genie ever showed up. And that was, I wanted to see God. Right? How many of you want to see God? Just want to see him? It's innate. It's in our hearts. Why is that? Well, dear friends, I think it's because seeing God is seeing beauty. It's seeing beauty in its fullness. And the Apostle Paul says this, that this will come to pass. He says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, Paul touches on a key point in this verse, which is the fact that beauty transformed. You see, beauty is able to slip past our defenses in ways that apologetical arguments can't. You ever notice when you try to tell someone, this is the truth, they put up defenses, right? When someone sees beauty, there's something about it that just seeps into our very being into our very heart. That's because, as Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, said, it is the prerogative and charm of beauty to win souls. Francis of Assisi's life was transformed one day by his encounter with the San Damiano crucifix. He was just staring up at the crucifix and looking at it, and his whole life was transformed in a second. And we, he went on a crusade for Christ. Henry Nguyen was once spent an entire day seated in front of Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son, just sat there all day, and looked at the painting. And he later wrote a book about how that painting transformed his life. You see, dear friends, beauty does really transform. And every one of us has had this experience, hopefully, from time to time. I mean, for most men, it's probably a beautiful young lady who, upon beholding her, it just pricks into your very heart that you have seen such beauty, just as Xerxes did in the face of Esther. See, in either case, the beauty beholden by the beholder led to some sort of inner turmoil in which the very soul of the individual was pierced by this sight. Simon Wheel astutely noted that beauty and affliction are the only two things that can pierce our heart. Beauty and affliction. And it is these two piercing realities that come together at Calvary. It is here at the cross that the prayer, Oh, to be a work of art, is finally answered. Thus, it is to the cross that we must turn if we are to understand the beauty inherent in the Christian religion. See, how many of you have ever studied art before? Art appreciation, anything like, okay. Then you are familiar with the concept that in aesthetics, one of the ways that we tend to view beauty is through the form. It is the form that gives beauty. And so, the distortion of a beautiful form takes away from its beauty. David Bentley Hart notes that in connection with Christ, this concept states that Christ is a persuasion, a form-evoking desire. Such an account of Christ must inevitably make an appeal to beauty. 
Well, if beauty is in the form and the beauty of the Christian religion is exemplified in Christ, then what is Christ's form of beauty? What form does Christ exemplify? Well, for many people, it is the form of Zeus. How many of you have ever seen paintings of Zeus? Just about every single one, he's doing the same thing. With one finger, what's he doing? He's pointing at the accuser. And what's he doing with the other hand? Grasping the lightning bolts. Now, how many Christians have come to see that as the Father, or even as Christ in the Christian religion, that that is the form of Christ? No, dear friends, it's not. If you would like to know what is the form of Christ, we have come to call it the cruciform. It is not this. It is this arms out wide in the self-giving, self-outpouring expression of divine love. It's not fingers crossed behind his back and hands held out. You know, here's an invitation, but I don't really mean it. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, during the Renaissance, there were many illustrative paintings of the crucifixion. I remember as a young boy objecting to many of them. I told my parents, don't the painters know that's not how it went down? Aren't they taking away? Don't they know better? All right, as if I knew better than the artist, or as if Van Gogh really thought a starry night looked like he depicted it. No, see, artists have this gift where they're able to see the deeper meaning, the deeper beauty behind the image. I can assure you when the Romans crucified people, they were not attempting to produce works of art. No. In fact, crucifixion was intentionally meant to horrify people by producing something so abhorrent, so ugly, that it would psychologically terrorize you. And you would never think about rebelling against the empire after having this image ingrained into your mind. So how, dear friends, is it that the crucifixion of Jesus came to epitomize Christian beauty? For nothing less than this reason, that it is here at the cross that we understand that love and beauty are given. They are not taken. Love that is taken we call rape. Beauty that is stolen we call thievery. Thus, true love and true beauty is what is freely given. It is here at the cross that God demonstrates his own love to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is demonstration of the love of God, whereby he takes upon himself the hideousness of men, and beauty and vulgarity meet at the cross, whereby God recycles our violence with a declaration on Easter Sunday, peace. Indeed, this is a strange message for many of us, but such should not be the case. True, we have grown up to the image of redemptive violence. This old myth, the cowboy with a pistol, can set things right with six silver bullets, and that is justice. See, we often have this image of the scapegoat, that we're often warring against one another, but the best way for teams to come together, for Pilate and Herod to become friends, is to point fingers at the other is to accuse the other and vent one's rage against the other, to alleviate hostility for a short time. But if we're honest with ourselves, any peace that comes about through suppression by force is merely a cessation of hostility until the next shoe comes off. Of course, men being the depraved, ugly sinners we are, never quite came to grips with this truth. And so we have continued to found our cities on the blood of the others. How many have read the story of Cain and Abel? 
Cain built the first human city and founded the first human civilization on whose blood? The blood of his brother, Abel. And God asked him, where is your brother? And what does Cain reply? Am I my brother's keeper? Hmm. This question will remain unanswered until the time in the first century when a Jewish itinerant preacher would instruct others to love their neighbor as themselves. Prior to the ministry of Christ, however, legend had it that Romulus, how many of you have heard the story of Romulus and Remus? The founders of Rome, that Romulus murdered his brother, Remus, and then went on to found the empire of Rome and its great glorious city. And so here again, we see the myth of redemptive violence, where yet again, human civilization is built on the blood of the other, on the blood of the enemy. Yet Christ tells us in the greatest sermon ever given, the meek shall inherit the earth. You know, I can just imagine the Roman guards standing by as they were doing crowd control, and they must have gotten a good laugh at this. Because the earth isn't inherited, it's seized. And definitely not by the meek. <laughs> Yet Jesus doesn't stop here. But he instructs his followers to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, and to pray for those who hurt them. In this way, the ruler of this world, the devil, is cast out. Because he has no place in a world that is built on restorative justice. And a world built on the love that Christ exemplifies. He only has a place in the hearts of those who demand an eye for an eye. Which, dear friends, leaves all of us one-eyed and very blind. Indeed, in Christ, there is no other. This is the greatest myth of all. This is the scapegoat, as we said previously, is that there is an other we can point to. But when Christ tells us to love our enemies, to love thy neighbor as thyself, and fellows, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Everyone is our neighbor. So there is no other. There is no enemy. There is only my neighbor. I love this epitomized in Les Miserables. Profound work. Where there is a convict named Jean Valjean. Now, Jean Valjean was, he had been released from prison and he was finding a place to stay. And nobody would take him in, except a priest. And Jean Valjean said, you don't even know my name. And the priest said, but I do. Your name is my brother. And Jean Valjean that night wrestled with the temptations of his former self, for he was a thief. And so late in the night, he stole many things from the abbot, and he went off on his merry way. The next morning, the priest was in his garden when a bunch of soldiers approached with Jean Valjean and the stolen goods. They said, this man had the audacity to tell us that you had given him these things. What do you think the priest did? What would you do? What would Christ do? The priest said, oh, but my dear brother, didn't I tell you that you could have the candlesticks as well? And he went and he fetched the candlesticks and he came back to Jean Valjean. He said, Jean Valjean, with these gifts, I have bought your soul. <laughs> One of the most beautiful stories I have ever read. Another story like it is of a lady who survived the Holocaust. Her name is Corrie ten Boom. 
Corey Ten Boom answers a question that Eli Weissel had. Eli Weissel, in, the, in his famous book, I think it's called Night, um, he asked a question that he posed to a bunch of people, which he was in a situation where an SS officer who was dying brought him in, and he confessed his whole life story, all the evil atrocities he had ever done. And then he asked Eli, will you forgive me? And Eli was silent, and then he left the room. He couldn't do it. And so he wrote a book and he asked, was it possible, could it be possible for me to forgive this man? And there were many different responses, but I think the best response comes in the form of Corrie ten Boom, who after the Holocaust, she went around Germany preaching the gospel and a message of forgiveness. And one evening she was preaching and she said, do you know that Christ takes your sins and he throws them to the bottom of the lake. And then I believe he puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Now, in Germany, people didn't like to talk about forgiveness after World War II. So most people were silent, and they walked out of the room. But Corey Ten Boom looked towards the back of the room, and she saw a familiar figure. It was one of the cruelest SS officers at the camp, the concentration camp she was kept. And he walked towards her, and he hand outstretched, he says, Fraulein, what a tremendous sermon. How good it is to know, as you have said, that our sins are at the bottom of the lake. And he asked her, will you forgive me, Fraulein? What would you do? What would Christ do? Corrie ten Boom said that she was struck. She was petrified. She didn't know what to do. In that moment, she prayed. She prayed... Spirit of God, give me the ability. Help me to reach out my hand. She said as she did it, she felt warmth flow through her body to her hand. And she held out her hand and she shook him. She said, I forgive you, my brother. You see, dear friends, as Jesus has said, you know what the unforgivable sin is in his eyes? If you don't forgive others their sins, then what? Neither will you be forgiven. So we are to forgive. So we have talked about Romulus and how he built this city. We have talked about Cain and how he built this city. Now pray tell how did Christ build his city, the city that Abraham longed for. You see, it is here at the cross that mercy, as James says, triumphs over judgment. And Jesus cries from the cross, Father, smite them because they really suck. <laughs> Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The disciples who deserted and betrayed me, the religious leaders who scorned me, the Romans who crucified me, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. With the love that moves the sun and the stars, the love that keeps no record of wrongs, that never fails, Jesus refounds the world in that eternal moment where God turns the other cheek where he puts away the sword, where he goes the extra mile, where he gives beauty for ashes. Now Nietzsche, how many of you ever heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? Now Nietzsche would come to criticize this attitude of turning the other cheek as a sort of slave morality. For Nietzsche, the will to power moves the sun and the stars, not forgiveness. 
For forgiveness is a sign of weakness. Nietzsche believed that the only reason you'd possibly forgive is because you don't have the ability to get revenge. Because if you had that ability, we all know what you would do. But what did Nietzsche think when Christ, who could summon seven legions, put away the sword and chose instead to forgive and to submit himself to the evils of mankind? Please turn your Bibles real quick to another passage. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 36. Pilate is questioning Jesus, and many people see this as Jesus before Pilate. But if I may say so, this is really Pilate in the courtroom of heaven. It is Pilate before Jesus. It says, And Jesus answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. What does Jesus mean by this? Essentially, I believe what Jesus is saying is that, yes, I am a king. But the reign of my kingdom in this world will not come about the same way that all the other kingdoms in this world that come about. It does not come in the way of this world, but it comes. You see, Jesus did not conquer like Achilles, who killed Hector and tied him to his chariot and dragged him around the city of Troy. You can go to a museum today and you can find the sword of Muhammad. But if anybody asks us, where are the weapons of Christ? We can't help but smile because Christ has a different way of conquering a soul. And yet his kingdom comes all the same. So why God-man, as St. Anselm would ask in Cordeus Homo? Why did God have to become man? St. Athanasius answers this question so eloquently in his magnum opus on the Incarnation that I would like to read it for you at length. He says, you know what happens when a portrait that has been stained on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains? The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come and sit for it again, and then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so was it with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew mankind made after himself and seek out his lost sheep. How beautiful is that? That the image of humanity was marred. And rather than tossing into the fire, what does the Father do? He has Jesus come, sit down, and redraws the image in the image of Christ, to whom we are all being conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, I'd like to conclude with these final reflections. There's a man named Solomon Rushdie who many of you, if you ever heard him, you're probably not a fan of. Neither am I, but I love this illustration, so please show mercy to me, dear brother. Solomon Rushdie once recounted the time he visited India with his wife. And of course, what's the one site in India that all people go to see? The Taj Mahal. See, they'd always heard of it. Everyone was always talking about it. So they thought, we have to go see the Taj Mahal. But on the way to go see the Taj Mahal, they were harassed by peddlers. Just a crowd of peddlers. And many of them were holding up small replicas of the Taj Mahal. 
And Rushdie says that when he saw those, it almost disgusted him from the whole endeavor, seeing these cheap replications. Why do you have to go see the real deal? But he pressed through all the same, and he said he was glad that he did. Because once he came inside the Taj Mahal, he was struck by its beauty and its splendor. Now, why am I telling the story? Well, because ultimately beauty is not something that can be explained or put into words. It is something that is experienced. Right? When you come to a beautiful cathedral, taking up one single picture from an angle doesn't do it justice. You have to be in it itself to experience this glory. That's why, dear friends, let me tell you, don't get caught up in the crowd of peddlers who tell you this is what Christianity is like. This is what Jesus is like. Push through the peddlers, reject the cheap model, and enter into the cathedral of the beauty and the glory of God and experience it for yourself. You see, I fear that one of the dangers of Christianity is we try to make this so pragmatic, so practical. It almost becomes somewhat of a joke when on Easter Sunday the angel says, He has risen! Your first reaction should be utter astonishment and amazement of what this message means. Notice Mary Magdalene say, oh, that makes perfect sense. I mean, Gary Habermas wrote up the minimalist facts theory. I mean, yeah, it makes so much sense. Now that you say, but what does this mean for me? How can it help me in my daily life? Like we said before, beauty isn't always practical, but it's worth living for. It makes life worth living. And so our first response to this message of the glorious gospel needs to be one of utter astonishment and amazement. I stand amazed before the one true king. This is why Christ never gave long philosophical arguments. You ever notice that? He never said, you know, here's the ontological argument, here's the cosmological argument, here, and that's why you should believe in me. He never said that. But he did say, come and see. Come and drink. Right? Because for many of us, if someone asks us, why are you a Christian? Let me be frank, it's usually another Christian asking you, right? And usually a very doubtful other Christian. And when you say, well, it's because of some experience I had. Experience is going to do it. You need to have the ontological argument, dear friend. You need to have the cosmological argument, dear friend. You need to read Martin Heidegger, dear friend, and Hegel, and all Isaac Newton. Come and see. Come and taste. I am not ashamed to say that, yes, while I do have understanding, the heart has reason of which reason knows nothing. And it's that my faith seeks understanding. I won't apologize for telling you that today when I walk to my car, I'll be talking to Jesus. You know, we have to be careful to not be like Mary Magdalene, who Mary Magdalene, she, she was distraught. When she entered the garden, she said, where have they taken my Lord? I feel like many of us think that too after we listen to a certain podcast, whether it be Richard Dawkins or some deconstructionist. We say, where have they taken my Lord? And Jesus shows up. And he's, is he the exact same as Mary Magdalene was used to? No. See, dear friends, because we go through stages of our life in which it's not that God changes, but our view of him changes, right? In that... Jesus lives in my theological house, but he is not my theological house. And I cannot get too confused because if my theological house, if I should identify that with Jesus and it should crumble, what happens to Jesus is a very sad thing. That's why sometimes my house needs to go through modifications, whether it's my eschatology, my anthropology, it must go through remodeling. 
And one of the worst parts about that is the neighbors who constantly come around and give you their advice. <laughs> right? But through it all, we must make sure to never lose sight of Jesus, who told Mary Lightenden, Mary, do not cling to me, for I must ascend to my Father. See, the truth is, dear friends, I have read much about the man who walked around Palestine kicking dust with 12 Jews. Can, can I be frank? I'm not going to know that Jewish carpenter. I never will. I can't try and travel. But I can know the living Christ. I can't go back in time and hear Jesus speak Aramaic. I can't go back in time and relive those events, this nostalgia. But I can experience him right now, this very day, just driving in my car. For he is with me, even today. See, Nietzsche once said something very interesting. He said, I would only believe in a God who could dance. And I know for many Baptists, it's highly offensive. <laughs> we had to tell them, go to the Pentecostal church over there, Nietzsche. But um, it is quite an interesting statement, because in the early church, the Orthodox especially, our Eastern brethren, they would often identify God at the Trinity in a sort of dance, where these three persons are involved in this eternal, harmonious dance through which life and love is expressed and abounds. And do you know what, dear friends, the most amazing part of this? We are invited to join in that dance. Can you imagine that? We're invited to join in. That's why, dear brothers, I, I never think God is using me. I don't tell people God is using me because I'm not a tool. I don't share my mysteries, my thoughts with my tools. Imagine telling your child, I can't wait till you grow up so I can use you. God is not like that. He's not the great user. And especially you must be careful when you're talking to those who have a history of sexual abuse. Say, like they don't want to be used by anybody, let alone God. God never says he wants to use us. He, the great commission, who are we in mission with? We're in mission with God. Who are we creating with? We're creating with God. It's, it's a really stupendous thing once you think about it. Jesus tells his disciples, I don't call you slaves. I don't call you servants. What does he call them? I call you my friends. Because the master does not share what he is thinking with the slave. But Christ shares it with us. Friend, <laughs> that is exactly what we are of him. We are friends. And we are invited to participate to join in this eternal dance. Perhaps my favorite atheist of all time is Beatrand Russell. How many of you ever heard of Beatrand Russell before? Beatrand Russell once said this fascinating thing. He said, the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite. The beatific vision, God, I do not find it, I do not think it is to be found, but the love of it is my life. It is the actual spring of life within me. That is an atheist, folks. That is an atheist. Look how beautiful that is. Why is this the very wellspring of this atheist? Well, I can tell you why. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, through whom God is making all things 
new. If you will bow with me real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you came here, Lord, and dwelt as one of us to show us what a true man is and should be like. I'm grateful for the example that Christ set, Father. How amazing it is that he turned the other cheek. How astonishing it is that he put away the sword. I ask myself if I can truly learn to repay evil with good, to do unto others as I would have them do to myself. Please, Father, teach us. Teach us, Father, as little children to emulate you in our daily lives. Because I truly believe, Father, that the world will not come to us once they truly understand the ontological argument and the cosmological argument. They will come to us, Father, when they see your beauty. When they say, there is something about that Christian, the way he loves his neighbor. For we know indeed, Father, that whatever we do for the least of these, we have done for you. So, Father, it is my prayer that you would forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil man, Father, that you would do all things well and all things for your glory, for you are glorious. Indeed, you are beautiful. And I cannot speak for everyone here, Father, but I concur with Beatrice Russell, and something in me just longs for beauty. Cannot explain it. From the moment I was born, something in me desired this beatific vision. And I wait with eager longing, with expectations, Father, of what that may be like. But I know that I will be fulfilled in you, where we will all, as your children, be swimming in your glory, Father. I thank you for this. I thank you for your son. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for being who you are. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.